to Managing Marketing, a weekly podcast where we discuss the issues and opportunities facing marketing, media and advertising with industry thought leaders and practitioners. Today, I'm sitting down with Drew Baker, Technical Director and a partner at Funkhouse, a digital agency based in LA and working at the intersection of strategy, design, content and technology. Welcome, Drew. Hey, Darren. Thanks for having me. Well, look, uh, it's great to to have this chat because I'm really fascinated by, first of all, a little bit about the history of uh, Funkhouse because you're based in LA and have a a real um, heritage in doing a lot of great uh, websites and things for uh, the entertainment industry, don't you? Yeah, we, we are really lucky that to do, like to dominate that niche for sure. Like we, we sort of say like all roads lead to Funkhouse in Hollywood. Somehow we just have so many of these clients. We, it kind of came out of because my business partner and creative director, David Funkhauser, he, he and I worked like year, 10 years ago now for this company called Wiredrive. And Wiredrive is, is still a thing. It's like a, it's like a private video sharing solution that's used a lot in like production of like commercials and sharing reels and stuff like if you're bidding on a job you might send a, around a reel of all of the like you know beer commercials we've done or something and that was y drive and so yeah. like a lot of you know these agencies that they were doing website work built this we didn't call it that at the time but a SaaS tool like this y drive thing and all of a sudden the SaaS tool became more more profitable than the building the website part and so y drive was just trying to give up and get out of the website stuff. And so Dave and I were just sort of sitting there in the wings, just like grabbing all these freelance website jobs. And then eventually we just had so much of them. We were like, hey, we we should probably just do do this website bit, you know? And so that's how we started and hit the ground running with a ton of Hollywood stuff. And so it's it's been good. But it's been about kind of trying to grow out of that for the last few years, just because there's a ceiling there on like how big you can really get by just doing that kind of work. Well, it's interesting, though, from my perspective, because the entertainment industry, Hollywood, is always been a real content factory, hasn't it? I mean, they do get how to make great content. You know, I love the fact that uh, advertising agencies often say that consumers have got uh, shorter and shorter attention spans, and yet they'll st- still sit down and spend a weekend binging on the latest Netflix series or whatever. So in actual fact, humans don't have short attention spans. The fact is that if you produce great content, then people are going to watch it. But the transition to web and especially building websites and web uh, entities around these uh, long-form content that Hollywood's famous for is still a challenge, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. And there's a lot of like, you know, special things to factor into to trying to present these companies and everything. But ultimately, like we look at it like, it's this intersection of a high design need, like competing on a high design need. Like if you're a visual effects company and you're trying to win business, you need to look like better than the next one. So there's this high design need that they all have. Then there is a real specific business case that they have, which is we need to have an agency call us and book us for a job, you know, or we need Netflix to hire us to do this thing or whatever it might be. 
And so that's like this really sweet spot for us is high design meets a specific business case, which is like, you know, read between the lines, has a budget. <laughs> and so yeah. it's been great for us to live in that space where we're building things that look cool, but have budget. And then it, it's been this great kind of proving ground to then roll into other areas that have the same sort of needs. Like boutique hotels has been a, a big one for us because it's the same thing. Like it's got to look cool. They're competing on being hipper than the next, but they're trying to book rooms you know, yeah. architecture firms and then also other other agencies, the same the same thing, really. They're trying to sell, present content in a way that looks interesting and more engaging than the next, but, you know, trying to convert a sale somewhere along the line. So that's been our sweet spot. Yeah, because looking at your website, I mean, it reflects high design, but it's also interesting from a structural point of view in that it takes you through you know, you can navigate it. In fact, it almost in, in, uh, encourages you to want to navigate through it. And yet, from my perspective, you know, one of the things that we're really frustrated by is that a lot of advertising agencies who say they have capabilities in this space, their own websites are often really difficult to navigate and, you know, even difficult to use. Why do you think that is? What do you, where, where's, where are people going wrong? Because agencies are also experts in content. Yeah, you know, it starts with who, like you should be asking yourself as an agency trying to build a website, like who are we? You know, it starts almost with the words than it does anything else. Like what do we stand for? What do we do? And there's this whole, you know, brand positioning exercise that these that you should go through before you even start a website. Um, you know, and a lot of times I think what happens with agencies is their relationship with executing on things, like building things, is a real, like, we came up with the idea and we hired a vendor to do it. You know, like that, you know, like they sold Google on this ad campaign and then they turn around and hire a bunch of other people to actually do the work, you know, and it's, yeah. and so when it comes down to like executing, that's a real, like our idea, you're the vendor, do what we say kind of relationship. And so when you haven't really existed in the digital space, you, you kind of get this weird, we've seen, you get a weird like crossover of what that agency is good at trying to kind of shoehorn that into a website. And so, <laughs> yeah, you know, like if you're great at like, if your bread and butter as an agency is like out of home billboard sort of stuff, really what makes you think that you would know how to build a good website or what even goes into a good website, you know, but you also don't get to be as good as you are by feeling that way. You sort of have this high degree of confidence that we know what we're doing and, you know, we're good at these things. And, and then it comes down to this little, like, joke that I make internally. It's like, hands up who builds, like, three websites a month. Oh, it's just us? Okay, then how about maybe you listen to us? Like, don't don't just um, come in and, and sort of dictate to the experts, like, what, what to do. Or, you know, have done the homework up front and, and really know who you are and, and what, what you're trying to get across on on your website because a lot of what we do is just brand therapy, like just working through like boardrooms, trying to figure out what is it that you guys do? What do you say you want to do? You know, a lot of that kind of stuff goes into it. Um, so I think the best thing that an agency building a website could do is just start with like, what do we do? Who are we? What don't we do? What do we want to do? You know, dress for the job that you want. <laughs> uh, and, and it's weird. A lot of people kind of like get hung up on sort of talking about, the things that they have done in the past, but it's not it's not really about that. It's what you want to do in the future. 
The other uh, trap I see is that a lot of agencies actually use the website almost like a demonstration of how creative they are without necessarily understanding the practicalities of that. And what I mean by that is the number of sites that, you know, take forever to load, which Google is punishing uh, dearly through their lighthouse metrics, but also just, you know, mobile first. You know, there's a whole lot of things that really frustrate me about a lot of agency websites. You know, you'd think they'd get the basics right. (laughs) Well, those kinds of websites you're talking about, I always laugh at them because, like, my role at Funkhouse is head of tech. So I'm I'm the guy solving a lot of our complicated programming things. You know, we have a whole, I'm not taking credit away from my team of engineers that all work here, but like I'm definitely also the one that is getting sent the link like, hey, we want to do this, you know, and then showing me some cra- something like exactly what you're talking about. Some crazy borderline like tech demo that isn't really going to work in a whole lot of different scenarios, but it's like looks cool, you know. And you definitely have to balance that. Oh, we want to look cool and we want to like show, hey, we're cutting edge. But you're also trying, you've got this business need that you need to meet. And a lot of people just forget that to your to your point exactly. It's like, you're not just trying to look cool for the sake of looking cool. Like, what are we doing here? We're trying to, you know, whatever it might be, sell commercials or whatever you might be trying to move. So yeah, I think a lot of people just lose track of the objectives. Um, yeah, and that, that happens all the time. Well, I, I like the fact that you said, you know, that intersection between high design and a business need, because I wonder sometimes if they're confused over the business need. You know, are they there to attract new clients? Are they there to attract new talent? Uh, what, you know, what, which part of this is, you know, and can you do both? And if you're doing both, do you need to have in some ways almost two different ways of entering into that website? Yeah, the, the attracting the, the talent part is a big thing now, especially in what's going on in the labor market right now. It's so hard to find good people. And that, you know, it, it depends on on who you're trying to attract because a lot of people, like if you're trying to, for me, right, if I'm trying to attract some engineers, it's not really my website that's going to get them. You know, like that's an important part of it, but it's going to be like, our open source code contrib- contributions or like our participation in, you know, some meetup groups around programming or whatever it might be, you know, and it, in the design world, it's different and the advertising world is different. I think you need to have like a robust solution on your careers page and answer a lot of those sort of heavy lifting questions. But it's more than just like one, oh, we've got that one page on our website, so problem solved. <laughs> you know, there's more in, in it for sure. The um. So that the talent part is a, is a big part of that, yeah. But I, I would look to do other things. Yeah, sorry, you just made me laugh because the number of sites you get to the uh, people page and it's that group shot that's taken, you know, of all these people standing in a funky laneway with graffiti and street art and, you know, the camera's up at a weird angle. And that's like, this is us as people. And it's like, well, it could have come out of a stock shot, couldn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think... I think your your website needs to do a good job of of showing your personality beyond just a photo, and and I think it plays into your social media as well. You know, like most people are really interacting with brands through that these days. Like, you know, if you told me ten years from now, websites aren't even a thing and it's all just social media platforms, like, that does seem like a possible outcome. Um, you know, so the website is there for a certain audience. Uh, but the, the other channels, I think, are just as important nowadays. You kind of have to be doing everything, unfortunately. 
Yeah. And look, I just want to pick up on that point because earlier you were saying about agencies are often outsourcing, especially the design and tech for for uh, for web development. And yet there's really no reason, is there? Because a lot of this technology now is available. It's, it comes down to getting the right people to be able to develop these web solutions in-house. Yeah, I think that is proving to be very hard for people to solve though. And and I get why, like it's very hard to, I mean, the Y Combinator guys, right? The, the accelerator out of um, San Francisco, they've got this whole theory that non-technical people just can't hire technical people. Like you can't be, you know, a marketing guy and hire an engineer and expect to kind of know what makes a good engineer. It's very hard to do. I mean, even in my experience, like, man, the amount of times we've like whiffed on a hire that we should know, you know, or like we've tried to outsource something because we couldn't do it because we were too busy or whatever the thing and then pick the wrong company or the wrong, it's really hard to do, I think. And so that's, I think, part of what's going on. And then also I think a lot of these agencies you know, you grow around the capabilities that you have and you start with a bunch of account managers or, you know, uh, like how do you start a successful agency? It's generally some guy leaves from some other big agency and brings a client with him. And now we're like the new hotshot and that's how you start. So they can't really make anything. You know, it's just this ideas economy, which for the longest time was like the sweet spot. Like you wanted to be getting paid for ideas. That's great. But I think now the big boys have all gotten big enough now that they've started to realize like, hang on, how much are we spending on web development? Or like, what's our like technical budget? And I think as the um, as the real money in like the ad space is is coming out of these tech platforms, like who's made more money from from ads, like Google or ad agencies, you know? So uh, I think, <laughs> yeah, I think the technical side has now become sort of the dominant piece of the pie. And so we're kind of moving back towards like, oh man, maybe there's this long-term sticky relationship that comes out of being the digital, like being able to solve digital problems for our clients. And, and that's something that we've seen a lot of is like, you know, like our clients, we control their website. And so we've got relationships that go for years and years and it becomes very hard to replace us, um, which I think, I think these big agencies are starting to realize like, hey, it's actually pretty easy to replace the ideas guys. It's really hard to replace the guys that built this whole thing. <laughs> so yeah. uh, I think that's playing into it for sure. Well, in some ways, you know, it's the uh, the idea can come from anywhere, but the when you build it, and, and I think it's interesting what's happened with the pandemic, you know, the global pandemic, is that I remember as recently as four or five years ago, there were people out there saying companies don't really need websites. There's enough place, you know, there's enough yeah. platforms out there like the Facebooks and the, you know, you, through social media, you can almost create your own presence that you don't actually need a website. But the interesting part is that the this move to e-commerce, you know, the acceleration of the amount of business being done online has really put the focus back on uh, websites, hasn't it? Oh yeah, it's gone insane over the last two years with the with just e-commerce and everything. And you've seen that in the the, the stock valuations of all of the big e-commerce players. And they're getting a real kind of like awakening now because I think a lot of people are wondering like, is that going to continue? But I, I mean, I think it totally is going to continue. I mean, who who w- wants to really have like a retail experience now? 
it's yeah, it's all online. So it. Yeah. Well, showrooming's taken off, which yeah. is you go into the bricks and mortar to actually see the product and then sit on your phone and buy it from one of the online retailers because uh, they'll deliver it tomorrow and it'll be cheaper anyway. Yeah, you know, I would say Australia is a little bit behind on on the e-commerce thing, you know, compared to what's going on in America for sure. Like, you know, the, the e-commerce stuff here is definitely ahead of it. And so I would think like the growth in Australia is going to be, I mean, I'm not breaking any news by saying that the future is e-commerce, but like it's only going to get more so I think in Australia for sure. Yeah. Um, so where, you know, from your perspective, what would be a great client engagement? You know, what what are the jobs or the clients and what is it about them that makes it a great opportunity? Well, for Funkhouse, it's like I, I'll, I'll sort of explain it through some of the best client work we've done, you know, and it's like. Absolutely. So one, a good example is we did the website for ICM Partners, which is a giant um talent agency here in America, one like kind of on the level of like CAA or one of those big talent agencies. And so that's a, a big, big company, lots of employees, lots of different divisions, lots of different sort of agendas inside the company. And so they, they came in early and it wasn't just like, hey, we want to build this website. Here's a creative brief, you know, go for it. They came to us and said, hey, we've never really had a website. We know that we don't know how to do this. Can you help us you know, get from nothing to, you know, the best website in this space. That's our target. And so that started with a whole lot of like stakeholder interviews for us and meeting with all of the different executives in all of the different departments and trying to get an understanding of, because the, the, the talent agency world is real smoke and mirrors sometimes because they don't want to really talk about who their clients are. You know, you can't be like an agent that represents Tom Cruise and then also represents the guy that Tom Cruise is competing against for all his roles or whatever it might be. Um, so they're, they're very, they, they sort of don't want to talk about their own to the internally. They don't want their own sort of people to know what's going on in there. So that's very secretive. And then some, some departments absolutely want to broadcast to the world what's going on. So you get, you've got this very different, you know, take on it all. So that was a great website project for us because it was more than just building something. It was solving this big complicated, like, like I said before, almost going through like a therapy session with the whole company. So that was a great one. Um, Drew, what, sorry, Drew, what I really liked about it though, is you said they came to you and, and there were two parts to it. One is they said, we realize we don't know this space, which is so important because that means they're completely open to your advice. The second part is, and we want to build the best website ever, which sets a that's the opportunity for you guys. And so often, you know, clients will say the second one, but they'll never admit the first one. They'll never admit that they don't know. And the problem with that is that they'll often, uh, the fact that they don't know but won't admit it stops you ever achieving the second part, which is the world's best website, isn't it? <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, they, the client, they, I should tell them to call you, Darren. <laughs> that would be a good, <laughs> a good, a good move. No, but, but from my perspective, almost any creativity needs a client that, first of all, says, I'm not an expert, that's why I'm coming to you. And secondly, here's, here's my vision. This is what I want to achieve. Now let's go and do it. What, what yeah. I've found is really interesting is the higher the level of operator, like the really good, smart people or the really high creatives, totally get that. You know, like for us, we've 
and built websites for Ridley Scott and you know Roman Coppola and these kinds of really high level creatives and being in meetings with those guys like then they're very real about what they don't know you know because you can't I don't think you can get to that level without being like knowing your strengths and weaknesses it's that middle ground that has all kinds of problems which is those people that are, are very ego driven about like you know being really smart at what they do but it doesn't always translate and so I think you have to have this level of humility in any new sort of thing is totally going to be a more successful result. Yeah, it's humility, Drew, but I also think it's a level of professional confidence in that they have confidence in themselves so they're willing to put their confidence in other people that have proven to them that they've got the chops to, to live up to expectations. Whereas I find that middle level that you describe is where, you know, they're often not that confident in themselves. So they're trying to micromanage everyone else for fear that something's going to go wrong. Yeah, absolutely. That's why I think the most important thing to start with is just figure out who you guys are before you even build a website. Just know what your strengths and weaknesses are, what you do like to do, what you don't like to do. Um, Totally, totally. But when you turn that on yourself, because, you know, I'm asking you to sort of pull back the, uh, the yeah. drapes in the way, you know, it's often very difficult to do that self-analysis. When you guys were developing your own website, and I, you know, I bring it up because when I, as soon as I clicked on your link and had a look at the site, I went, well, it's pretty amazing. Was it difficult turning that, uh, that sort of critical vision back on yourself and getting agreement? Or were the partners all fairly aligned or did you have differences of opinions? Because, you know, you said before the talent agency, different departments all had different needs. Did you have the same thing or was it fairly unified? Oh, it was so hard. <laughs> so hard. <laughs> Building our own website took, it took forever because we had this saying, like for the longest time when we first started, our, whole, our website was like one page and it just it said across the middle, the cobbler's kids have no shoes. Because like we just had no time to build our own website and and it, it took years we it took years because it, you just don't have time because you're in the client game you know and you're always got a client sort of wanting something and so you always find time by shortcutting yourself so it was really hard but then in terms of just like the strategy and and being self-analyzing like that yeah it was really difficult for sure and also we were going through crazy growth and trying to figure out Hey, what do what do we say on our website that we do? You know, I think when we started, we were very um, like just being you know transparent about it. We were very focused on the building, the the development part. Like, oh, we're a development shop and we'll design it. And we kind of like tried to talk about the the programming side of it. I mean, obviously that uh, that was me, right? I like that. And then I had this big realization one t- one. One year, and I was I was actually back in Australia and visiting. My dad is a long term construction like general contractor, um, and I was sort of looking at his business, and I was seeing the parallels with what my business was. You know, I was just I was just doing that in a digital sense, and and I think it was a really good lesson of like, okay, if you're building a house, you know, you you're an architect. You have the the main people involved. You have the architect, you have the property owner, and then you have the construction guy. And who would you rather be? Like, what are the risk rewards for each little group there? You know, well, you've got the property owner and his risk is a huge capital outlay and his upside is, you know, kind of limited. Like, it's not like he's going to get a a million percent return on his piece of land that he developed. You know, some, you know, if he does really well, it might be a hundred percent, you know, that's it. Then you have like the construction guy 
which was my dad in this scenario. He's doing all the work. He's there every day for years and his risk is really high. You know, he's outlaying all of this stuff and, you know, he might make 20%, you know, that's it. And then you have the architect and the architect is, if he's a star architect, his upside is so out of whack for what he might, you know, spend a few weeks designing this thing and get paid unlimited. You know, like what does Frank Geary get paid to design a building? It must be so outstripping his like hourly cost or anything. And he has no risk, like really. And so I sort of was like, hang on a minute, who would you rather be? Like, because that was us, right? Like I don't, and so we made this hard pivot away from talking about ourselves as the construction guys. We're selling art. (laughs) So we went hard on the like, we're design and strategy and all these kinds of things. And we also have exceptional execution, but you don't care about that which was the hard truth for me to swallow. No client is paying us for the development stuff. They're, they want it to work. And if it works, great, no questions asked. But it needs to look good. It needs to sell the vision. It needs to meet all these business objectives. And those are all not even related to, to development. And so we had to ha- ask ourselves all those hard questions um, to build the website that we have now. And look, I love the fact that you're putting it in financial terms, you know, financial return on investment. But we know human beings are incredibly emotional. And and I was sitting here thinking, you know, it's also interesting when you apply a emotional return on investment there, because for the developer or owner, there's the sense of, yeah, at best, they get a satisfaction of they've funded and and done a, a good job that's returned good money, and hopefully that will build on their reputation. For the construction guy, it's just you're reliable and you did a good job and you'll get another job. It's the architect that goes on and gets bigger and bigger and bigger projects because their reputation uh, just keeps growing and growing. So even on an emotional level, there's the same sort of out of kilter in that uh, you all want to do a great job because it'll lead to more work. But in some ways, the the most visible is always going to per- be the person that designed it, had the vision. And really then the others just bring it to life, either through funding or through doing the, the back-breaking sweat work. You know? Absolutely. And you just got to really think about where you sit in that you know food chain, I suppose, and do the best you can at whatever it is you decide. There's some great dev shops out there that only do that sort of stuff but it's really it's a real really hard thing to do and i i just you know the other problem is that uh you know it's become a uh, and for a long time has been a global business and a lot of development has been outsourced to lower cost economies you know and they've got these huge sweatshops of uh coders just you know sitting there hacking away i mean in some ways that is devalued to your point, the construction part of of web development, hasn't it? Because it's like, oh, well, why would I pay, let's say, 150, 200 US when I can get a person for a month, a developer for a month for that price out of a, you know, developing country? Yeah, I think that the reason why you shouldn't do that, and I'll I'll explain the sweat and tears that we learned doing this, you know, like as we were going through our growth here, we tried that, like, I tried, okay, like let's build out a, an Indonesian-based dev team and see if we can figure out this offshoring model, you know. And what you find out real quickly is that like one, it's really hard to maintain a company culture across a setup like that, for at least internally. You, your team has no allegiance to you, you know. 
So you got to, that's really hard. And so the Indonesian thing didn't work because we ended up spending most of our time, like those guys didn't work for us. We just sort of engaged like an Indi- an Indonesian based dev shop to like, you know, w- they were going to have the people and we were just going to be a client, but the incentives are so out of whack. Like their incentive is bill us as many hours as possible. And our incentive is get it done in a short amount of, because that's our margin. And so it just doesn't mesh. And so then the next thing we tried was, okay, that didn't work. Let's try like an insuring setup in America. We'll find a smaller town that has a high tech to- tech like talent pool. And so we built a, uh, an office around the Cornell University in upstate New York in this town called Ithaca. And that was that's where we really ran into the cultural thing. It was like that office became its own little satellite that had no allegiance to the main thing. And, and after a few years, like they kind of, a whole bunch of them just like left to go do their own thing. Like, why do they need us? You know? So that was really tough. And I think also doing that in a, in a city that was really hard to get to and no one wanted to go really go visit, like was no one from the main office really was like, oh, let me get on two planes and a bus. You know, it became difficult. <laughs> um, so we, we, And yet that's what it takes, doesn't it? Because, yeah. you know, it is actually that constant human interaction. And I know, you know, we've got used to living a virtual uh you know, uh, video conferencing world, but there's still something about spending time with people. Absolutely. And so now we sort of have, I think we, well, TBD, but it looks like we've kindly figured it out a little bit. You need to have, like in our case, we have uh, four or five people in our LA engineering team that are living in LA, based in LA, that's our LA people. And then we have a team in Croatia, in Zagreb, to to sort of augment that. And, and the thought there is like one, like if you've ever been to Croatia in the summer, that place is paradise. So no, no problems trying to get people to go there. And also we bring them out here for two or three months a year uh, and do like on-site training. And we kind of try hard to like make them part of the company. And so that so far is working. So if you think, if you're an agency out there and you're thinking like, oh, let's, let's build out our own sort of offshore dev operation, you have to be willing to do what I just described. You have to be able to build a team remotely, bring them to your home office, send your people there to like build a culture and train them. It's a lot of work. Like it's a lot of work. And and I think if you're not technically inclined, like forget about it. Yeah. Uh, yeah I've heard that described as the here, near and far strategy. Okay. So here is on the ground for you guys, LA. Uh uh, then a lot of companies are, are doing something similar to what you did in upstate New York. You know, it's it's near, but it's not a totally different country. And then far, and uh, what the approach they take is different levels of responsibility. You know, in that a lot of design is done here, sort of the experimentation is done near, and then the real dev work is done far where you know once it's all been put together near here and near they get it done as far but i love the fact that um, you know bringing people together and rotating people around is so important that, that interaction and and people getting that uh, the flavor of working in each of those areas is amazing yeah i do think that's the only way to do it like tr- trying to train someone via screen share is just not a good idea and i know that the whole work remote thing especially in the tech world is you know, is becoming this like default assumption that that's how everything should be. You know, remote only job positions are like the new sort of hot way to get talent. But man, as the guy who has to, has had to train people through Zoom, 
it's the most frustrating thing you could do. So I'm a big believer in, at least in the early days, sitting next to someone is definitely the way to go if you can. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, look, I'm going to ask you for the uh, crystal ball now, you know, and and uh, based on the, the themes and the innovations that you're seeing. But, you know, there's a lot of talk around about Web 3.0. Um, what what do you see as the big themes coming forward and, and the impact that they'll particularly have around web development? Yeah, so this this can get real technical, but the I mean, just want to start up front by saying I think a lot of the Web3 stuff still is very much not solved. We don't have a great use for a lot of it. I think a lot of the um, the, the sort of cryptocurrency and NFT stuff is real scammy and and has been sort of co-opted a lot by some pretty bad actors. I think it's a fantastic technology and there's some really interesting things happening in that space, but it's so early days. Like it hasn't really affected the agency world yet. There's a couple of really good examples that, that you know, when you see them, you're like, okay, that's interesting. And to me, one, the, the two main ones, one is, there's an agency out of New York that was called Friends with Benefits and they minted their own coin called the FWB coin. And what they did was they they figured out a way to kind of create a secondary market for this coin. And I'll explain it real quick. Are you familiar with this at all, Darren? Have you heard? Have you- yeah, yeah, I've heard about it. Yeah. yeah. So what they did was they started a Slack channel with all of their clients and a whole bunch of their sort of select vendors, like people they worked with that were great. And they... They said to the public, you can join our internal like Slack channel if you hold a certain amount of FWB coin. And I think in the beginning it was like $10 or something. It was nothing. And they gave away like half the coins they minted to all of their like best clients and their best sort of, you know, relationship people. And so this Slack channel just became a a really interesting place to to meet high-end creatives and also meet high-end technical people especially in the sort of web three space, because that, that's kind of their world. And so it drove up the value of the coin, which they happen to own a lot of. And so that was a really interesting, and now they've they've built a, a whole bunch of like events around, you know, and a lot of thought leadership stuff that you can only participate in if you own a certain amount of the coins. So that's been really kind of an interesting way to see the, see like adding value in a different way that was kind of interesting, but it's still fundamentally relying on like currency speculation. So that sort of stuff is where it gets a little dangerous. <laughs> um, yeah, though, though in that particular case, I, I saw it more as community building yeah. and community in a sense of scarcity. Yeah. You know, it's a bit like uh, what, what, one of the brands, and I'll, I'll probably get it, uh, is it Hermes, you know, where you can only buy the next level bag if you've already bought the two below it. Yeah. You know, it, it, it had that sense of rewarding people for being... Uh, able to collect or, or possess those those coins, which then gave gave them access to something that was highly desirable for the community, and so it was the scarcity, which goes back to you know almost classic economics of supply and demand. You know the value of it came not through uh, the the coin itself, but what it represented for access to that community. Yeah, but where I guess where my problem is with that and also the the whole idea of like we kind of haven't figured out a great use for this stuff yet is that you can do all of that with a without crypto coin you know you could just make oh we only are letting 100 people in a year you know or whatever it might be 
like you solved a problem there that you didn't really need to use crypto for, but the currency speculation side of it was awesome because you could turn around and be like, oh, this coin is worth a lot and we own most of the coin. So yeah. it was, but hey, it was a, a novel use for it that I, I've kind of seen in the agency game and thought, oh, that's a good use of it. But in terms of the one thing I've seen that I think is a legit game changer in the technical space for web development, and this gets pretty technical, but there's a... um. There, there is this pack, like in, in the concept of web development, you have this idea of a package and a package might be uh, a piece of code that someone else wrote that I'm using in my project. And you can have packages inside packages inside packages. You know, it's an upside down pyramid. So if you've built a website, you might not even know, or I wouldn't even know half or more, like 80, 90% of the packages that are being used sort of behind the scenes. So this idea, there's a package manager that was called Homebrew that was really, really popular uh, for this kind of stuff. And the guy who created that is a guy named Max Howe. He's started a new the sort of successor to Homebrew. It's called T. And you can look it up. T.xyz is their website. And what he's trying to do is solve this. He's using NFTs and, and blockchain to, to flow money from this top tier of packages, like there's a real high level visibility, like React would be an example of one that's like very popular. A lot of people are familiar with React, but React is built on the top of like thousands of other packages that no one's ever heard of. So if you're these like sort of celebrity, you know, in the tech world, these celebrity open source coding guys, you're you're making a good living based on sort of Patreon and, and sort of open source um, sponsorship and things. But you're existing on the back of a lot of people below you that no one knows about. And so what T is, is going to do is through, through NFTs is make each package get a portion of the revenue of the top level packages. So it trickles all the way down. So this Fantastic. could really, yeah, it's, this could really change the whole game for funding the open source sort of development efforts. And it was always the problem, wasn't it? with open source because there are so many really clever people out there doing really clever things, but it was always difficult to to keep them funded except through the largesse of patrons, you know. Yeah, absolutely. That, and and it's a huge problem right now. There's, you know, there's some really famous cases recently of of people that had built these, like Faker.js is a really good example of this. Like this was a, a package that a guy developed um, that was used to simulate data when you're building something like placeholder data basically and he just got fed up with all of these giant companies using it um amazon's google's all these people and so he he kind of like just got gave up he just published a a code commit that kind of broke it and was like i'm sick of working for free for these giant multinational companies like i'm no longer doing this anymore and i'm breaking it for everyone you can roll back a version if you uh, you know care enough and it created a whole thing of people being like, it, what ended up happening was Microsoft, who owns GitHub and where his code lived, like kicked him out and rolled it back and made it work for everyone. So like Microsoft kind of like co-opted it. And so yeah. it, it, it's a real problem in this open source world of how to fund this stuff. And so T is the first crypto or NFT thing I've seen that really solves a huge need that we have. Uh, so I'm keeping a, a close eye on that. Well, and, and once that problem's solved, it's going to accelerate the development because it's going to actually support the people that are, are doing that groundwork that leads to all these innovations, isn't it? Yeah, it, it could it could be huge for the open source world. I hope, I hope, but it, the, the 
we're really going to test the theory now of this decentralized thing is better than the centralized thing because the yeah. centralized thing is really in the in the front end world that I live in is is npm which is owned by microsoft just recently yeah. and so can, can this decentralized thing compete against the centralized people with a ton of money so we're about to find out <laughs> Yeah. Hey, Drew, this has been fantastic, but unfortunately we've run out of time. Um, look, thanks for uh, taking the time to uh, have a chat. My pleasure, Darren. Fantastic talking to you. And uh, look, just before you go, a quick question. Uh, when you go online, what's your go-to website? Mm-hmm.